I want to thank you for being here this evening and hope that uh, this is the start of a wonderful holiday week for you. And let's do remember those that we've already mentioned as well as others that might be on our hearts and minds. Uh, I guess we need to pray for our pastor right now and, and think about him getting to sit down at his mother's table at 7 o'clock tonight is what he said. He had to make a 7 o'clock supper tonight. So uh, remember him and some uh, his time away. I want to do a little something different tonight, and that is I kind of want to share for about five or six minutes with you about what's going on with Rolling Hills and then draw it into uh, what God's laid on my heart. They kind of go hand in hand tonight. Uh, it has been an unbelievable year for Rolling Hills ministry, and Temple Baptist Church plays a tremendous role in the success of Rolling Hills. Through the gift of your uh, time through the gift of donations through budgetary gifts through you giving of your stuff i get to see a lot of you in the driveway or i watch you on the camera when you drop it off i actually can see it from my desk but uh, you are so supportive of all that we do you allow us to have our annual disaster relief training here and and there's so many things you are just an integral part of our ministry as well as this association and this year has been an unbelievable year for the ministry. It started in January with us opening our new ministry facility in, uh, in Monroe. And God has blessed that beyond anything that we even imagined as he's opened a door of ministry opportunity for us in Washtenaw Parish and, and surrounding areas. And we just praise God for what he's done in that and allowing us to get our feet on the ground to try to make a difference in people's lives. Years ago, we adopted a motto that was pretty simple in its nature, but pretty profound if we actually will do it, and that is for us to make a difference in the world one person at a time. You and I might not be called to speak to thousands, and we might not think that we influence people by the hundreds, but every day our lives have the opportunity to impact someone's life. Make a difference in someone's life. Make a difference in this world one person at a time. For five years, we've been searching for a location in the northwest Louisiana area. We have rented a building that's been very inadequate, and we have hit one dead end after another. It was all in God's timing. God opened the door for us, and Friday we signed the papers to buy the old Roundtree used car dealership on Benton Road. After some renovation and some additions, we will open a massive ministry center in the Bossier City area in the summer of 2019, so you need to pray for us. This has been a deal we've been working on for six months. If you can imagine having to deal with an owner on the East Coast, a title company in Michigan, three lawyers, two environmental studies, the insurance company, and the bank, you can only imagine what we've been through over the last few days. I went in to sign some of the papers the other day, and they said, here, hurry, sign them. We haven't checked our email in five minutes. I'm sure something's changed. <laughs> and sure enough, I signed them, and it had changed by the next morning. But anyway... And so God is opening a door there, and we're, uh, we're excited about what he's going to do as he allows us to, to expand our ministry footprint in the shreveport Bozier area. We're also looking at some other locations uh, that you'll hear more about in 2019 as God allows us to continue to look for ways to, again, impact our world for Jesus Christ. Our state park ministry, where we were founded over 30 years ago, had one of the best years we've ever had. A lot of it has to do with weather when it's, in, it's state park related, and this year was a great year to, to go to the parks and to enjoy them, and we had one of our largest attendance at one of our services that we've had in 30-plus years of doing this ministry, and it doesn't happen by accident. Every year, we have to go to the Department of Tourism to get permission from the state of Louisiana to be in the parks, and God has opened that door for over 30-plus years, and we thank 
God that he has allowed that to continue, especially in the day and age in which we live and the environment that we live. I believe it's a God thing that he allows us to get into the parks. And then we've, we're involved internationally. We sent another mission team this year to Belize where we're working uh, there, and we're, we're excited about that. Our compassion ministry side of our ministry continues to grow. Uh, right now we have uh, about 15 uh, enrolled in our GED program. Uh, we've had four graduates within the last year. We've got two that are ready to take the test now, and we just rejoice with them as God allows that to, to grow. And we minister on a daily basis to people in need. And uh, many of you are aware that all it takes is somebody uh, giving us a referral if you know somebody in, in need, especially this, this holiday season, and we'll do whatever we can to try to help them. Of course, our big ministry, and many of you have asked me, has been lately disaster relief. It has been several years now that we have had literally one disaster after another. I was talking to Lloyd before the service now uh, about his time with the Louisiana Baptist Convention because he got to serve still for the big one, Katrina. Uh, but uh, it has been the flood of 16 and, and then the, the hurricane of 17 and then the hurricane of this year. And God has really stretched us to our limits, not only as state conventions and regional units, but also as a Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Rolling Hills had the opportunity, as many of you are aware, and, and you'll get a newsletter, many of you, in, in the coming days. Uh, we set out uh, after Hurricane Michael, thinking that we were headed for Panama City. As with anything, you don't know till you get there where you're going. Uh, we thought we were spending the night in Pensacola, and we found out that we were driving to our destination of Mariana, Florida. We were about 60 miles inland in Florida, north of Panama City. If you're familiar, we're between Pensacola and Tallahassee on I-10. Mariana's in a uh, county, a, a parish, a lot like Lincoln Parish as far as pine trees and the way it looks. Uh, I can honestly say I've had the opportunity to respond, I think, to about 40-something disasters now. I've lost count. I have, I have seen greater devastation with an F5 tornado in Oklahoma, but I've never seen more widespread devastation than I witnessed in the Florida Panhandle in all the years that I've been doing this. It was literally like you drive into an F2 or F3 tornado. If you can imagine Lincoln Parish going out today when the sun comes up in the morning, 60% of the trees are, are gone, are, are damaged, are, are, are broken. If they're standing and they had leaves on them, they don't have leaves on them anymore. If it's a pine tree, it looks kind of like Charlie Brown now. It's just got a sprig here and a sprig there. Literally, it looked like the trees in some places had been bush hogged about 30 or 40 feet off the ground. It just is clean as far as you could see, just cut to the ground. Not a single house was unaffected in the town we served, about 10,000 people. Debris stacked down both sides of the road. Uh, the county was 100% without power. Uh, three and a half weeks into it, it was still almost 20% uh, without power, and they are just now getting power to the final groupings down there. In fact, our generator is still down there. The rest, a lot of our stuff came home. When we went in and uh, on the setup team that, uh, that Friday to, to begin to feed, uh, we had to literally drive down over power lines and around debris just to get to where we were going. We got to our site, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but we bedded down for the night about 11 o'clock. We slept in trucks and in warehouses and in the backs of trucks and wherever you could sleep, only to get up about 2 o'clock in the morning when supplies began to arrive to unload. 
I hadn't slept much anyway that night because before I went to bed, they said, now last night we had looters out here on the site, and so you need to keep an eye out. And so in my dreams, the couple of hours I had, I saw looters all night long, you know. But uh, the first two or three days, and Rusty and Jerry were on that uh, setup team. I don't believe anybody else that's here was on that setup team. We served uh, heater meals that were being shipped to us from North American Mission Board Warehouse in Ashland, Kentucky. And those heater meals are just a kind of a pasta dish that you tried to dress up as best you could. And we passed it through car windows. We, we directed traffic, we cooked the food, and we handed it to the people literally by the thousands who would drive through in a, in a uh, car line. Don't ever complain about sitting three or four cars back at a restaurant trying to get through the drive-through when, when it literally went a mile or so down the road, it looked like, uh, on, as we were feeding. We did that for two or three meals, uh, two or three days before we transitioned into a uh, Red Cross feeding site. And uh, we were a Red Cross feeding site from that point forward because they brought in the emergency response vehicles and distributed the food. Because honestly, the people didn't have the gasoline to sit in line to get food, so it needed to be carried to them. During our activation, we were there about three and a half weeks and we prepared 115,000 meals that were distributed during that three and a half weeks. I was thinking back over the last year, if you add Harvey together and Michael, the two together, we are right at 300,000 meals that we've had the opportunity to prepare and distribute with either the Salvation Army or the Red Cross. But what really touched me more than anything else is, are the people. The site we were set up at was a, became a ministry hub. It was about two or three acres in size. We had, on any given night, we had anywhere from 15 to 40 uh, military on site. They used our facilities. When we got there, we had carried in a pickup load of food. After Hurricane Rita, Jerry said she would never go anywhere without food because when we got to Leesville after Rita, there was nothing to eat. And so we carried a pickup load of food in, and we were able to actually feed the military guys for the first couple of days. And when I say feed, they, a ham sandwich was like a feast to them, and, uh, or peanut butter and jelly or whatever it might be. We had about 10 from what I call ATF that were on the ground with us. On any given day, we had about 20 to 30 nurses that were doing first aid on our site. Then all the people that were driving through, they, we were a distribution site for ice. We would get in 18-wheelers of ice. It would normally take about two or three hours to distribute an 18-wheeler of ice, and it was gone. Uh, and so it was a, a busy, busy site. But people, again, just came by the thousands to that site. And God gave us, as individuals, different ones on our team, ministry opportunities that I never dreamed of. On average, I would say we prayed with between 20, 25, 30, 40 people a day uh, that God would, and that doesn't count all the short prayers as people were being handed food through the windows of their vehicles. We prayed with military, and we prayed with truck drivers, and we prayed with, with individuals who walked up who said, I haven't had a shower in a week. Can I use your shower facilities? We prayed with people who said they hadn't had a meal in days. And God just continued to open up, and over and over again, it, it, what impacted me was the fact these people were in shock, and they were hopeless and lost, and they just needed to know that somebody cared. And it made me realize all over again what we're supposed to be about as a church. I'll never forget one afternoon that Kirk Reynolds and I were carrying trash. There's some humorous side of this, too. We, uh, 
we, we, couldn't, we couldn't get a dumpster. Disaster relief is kind of like getting a snowball started downhill. You can't get it started, and once you get it started, you can't get it stopped. Well, we couldn't get a dumpster. And so we were piling trash, and we were using the little dumpster on site. And when you're doing 8,000 meals a day, you're generating a lot of trash. And so we were over there by that dumpster. Uh, by the way, we finally got a dumpster, and then we couldn't get it emptied. Uh, and, and the long and short of that was the landfills had closed down, and the state of Florida had to sue them. So they couldn't empty our dumpster, but they could continue to bring us dumpsters. So we just kept getting dumpsters after that. And we're not talking about the dumpster like behind the church kitchen here. We're talking about the big roll-off dumpsters, okay? Uh, we couldn't get, and this another one I'll move on, we couldn't get porta-potties either. Uh, you don't know how important a porta-potty is. Uh, when you have about 100 people on site and you have two toilets, you need a porta-potty. Well, we couldn't get them. Well, finally, we got a set of porta-potties. I told the guy when he pulled up that night, in the middle of the night, I just wanted to hug him. I'd never been so happy to see a porta-potty in my life. And then we got another set of porta-potties, and then a third set came in. I said, please don't unload that set. We've got plenty. Well, then they said they were coming to get our porta-potties, to which some of our volunteers that were down there said, we're going to sit in them. They're not taking them. <laughs> so you have to laugh at some of that. But Kirk and I were putting cans in a dumpster one afternoon. We ran into a little elderly lady who asked, and she said, do you mind if I get cans out of this dumpster? We said, no, ma'am. Can we help you? And she said, sure. And so we kind of helped her get her cans. She was going to use them for a garden or something. We began to talk to her. She was 89 years old. And she, she told us, I asked her about her story. I said, well, tell me about yourself. She said, well, I'm 89. I'm, my husband's 92. I've just put him in a, in a nursing home. Uh, we've been married about, I've forgotten, about 70 years, I think is what she said. And she said, it's really been tough these last two or three months. And now I've got a tree on my house. And and I just don't know what I'm going to do, and I just don't know where I'm going to turn. And, and uh, to make a long story short, we sent a chainsaw crew out there the next morning and took care of the tree on her house. But, you know, she made a statement to me as we continued to talk to her. She said, it's going to all be all right because God is good. And God's got all this under control, even though I don't understand. And it made me realize that I had the opportunity to talk to a very dedicated Christian lady by that dumpster that day and to pray with her and she was founded on what could give her hope but how many thousands didn't have hope you know when you think about the typical small town in america i was reading something this afternoon that was listing the best small towns in america when we think of a typical small town in america and i don't really think ruston would be classified a typical small town because the university brings a different dynamic to where we live, but a typical small town in America is going to have tree-lined streets, and it's going to have a lot of different churches. It's going to have restaurants and fast food restaurants. It's going to have a great high school football stadium, chances are, and a program that everybody follows and, and all of that. And we think of that small town USA. And then we think about a typical Southern Baptist church. What is a typical Southern Baptist church? I think when we say that, something might immediately come to your mind or my mind, and it might be based on where you grew up in, in a smaller town or where you uh, went to college or, or where you've lived even before you've lived here. But in our minds, we think of what a typical uh, Southern Baptist church would be, and it could be that it's nice buildings and a, a nice worship center. It could be that it's wonderful programs of Bible study and music and missions and evangelism, and all of that is great. And we need to understand that. 
But I have an opportunity to do a lot of traveling, and I can tell you that a lot of churches today are in trouble. And there are a lot of churches that have limited growth or no growth or are declining. And there are a lot of churches that are struggling to keep their doors open. And it makes me wonder, because one of the things that we prayed for on the conference calls that I was on for this disaster, almost every conference call ended with a prayer for revival. That God would use the event that struck Georgia and, and Florida and southern Alabama and use it to bring revival because over and over again we heard of small churches in rural communities that were standing in the midst of the storm and were bringing hope to their community. And it made me realize that no matter what size church we are, that's what God has called us to do on a daily basis, not just in the midst of the storm to bring hope and to bring healing into a community, into our, the, where he's placed us. I don't think there is an ordinary church or a traditional church. I think what God wants us to be is extraordinary or extraordinary. I think he wants us to think outside the box, to color outside the lines. I think that's where ministry evangelism comes into play. You know, it was said about those early followers of Jesus when they came to town that it, it says, here come those people that turn the world upside down. And that's the way we need to be known. We live in a world that seems to be flying apart at the seams. And the church needs to be more vocal and stand stronger than we've ever stood in the midst of what we're facing. And that means that we as the church, the body of Christ, minister to a hurting world. It means that we, we minister to those that are battered, to those that are lonely, to those that are needy. And it's more than just during a time of, of a storm like the disaster activation that I just described. It's ministering to those in need in the name of Jesus Christ. It's reaching out to those who have not only physical needs but spiritual needs. It's showing them the love of God in order for them to understand that someone does care about them and more than that, that God loves them. I think this, there is sound basis theologically and biblically for this type of evangelism. When we think about Jesus Christ, he didn't just remain in some faraway place and send a message to earth that said, hey, y'all need to be busy about sharing the good news. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus came. He virtually was a part of us. It's giving us a message that God wanted to be vitally involved in his creation. And Jesus, the Bible says, became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And in so doing, he showed us what love is about and, and what we're to be about in the world in which we live. You know, I think of what Mark says in his writings, when Mark says, quoting Jesus, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So if we reverse that, if we're not fishers of men, then are we following him? Let's look at it that way. You see, all of us are given the opportunity to, to be a soul winner. And that just means meeting people in the real world who have real needs where they are. Whether we choose to get involved is really not an option. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You shall be my witnesses. 
It didn't say you, you might be. It didn't say if you want to be. It says you shall be my witnesses. And, and so I think the, the question that we need to ask ourselves tonight, and I try to ask myself is, David, what kind of witness are you being? And are you being a witness on a daily basis? The church, the emphasis that we have on evangelism should be the norm, not the exception. When we stop and we think about Christ's journey and we think about the time that he lived and we think about where we live today, we need to realize that while we might live in different times and New Testament times, we're part of the same church. We're part of the same strategy to reach a lost world. And while the tools might be different, I don't believe the tool of evangelism has ever uh, changed of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' approach to ministry was relational. When we stop and we think about it, that er in, in that early church, they followed what Jesus had taught them, and they were passionate about people. And I'm afraid somewhere along the way that a lot of churches have lost their passion. You know, the pages of the New Testament, go back and read in the book of Acts, they are filled with the talk of evangelism. But they're also at the same time filled with stories of ministry. And I believe they go hand in hand. Evangelism and ministry, ministry and evangelism. Concern and love for others, witnessing and serving others was a part of that first century church. But slowly throughout history, as we look at, at the church, the zeal was somehow lost. And when we look at that church, the church became more and more institutionalized. And as we look at the church, a lot of churches became where all they were was taking care of those within the walls. Some didn't even like that, and they decided to just kind of go away to control communities where they could be uh, separate from the world. And nowhere do I read that we're to only to minister to those within the walls of the church. Yes, we're to meet the needs of those within the walls of the church, but as a, as a church, the body of Christ, we're to minister to the, those in and outside the walls. And nowhere do I read that we're to live our lives individually or as a church in isolation. I firmly believe that God gives us on an individual basis, he gives us as a church opportunities over and over and over again to make a difference in our world. I think of that passage of scripture where it says Jesus, when he traveled among the villages and he was teaching in the synagogues about the good news of the kingdom, and it says wherever he went, he healed people of every sort of disease. And he felt great pity for them because they had such a great need. If we want to know where we need to get started, all we need to do is look into the world. And we've got plenty of places that we can get started. When we stop and, and we think about a lot of churches today, I'm afraid a lot of churches today are unwilling to change. And when you look at that, it's really sad because if, they, if a church becomes ordinary or just traditional and and doesn't want to change. And when I say change, I, I'm not saying your doctrine and what you're founded on and, and the Bible and all of that, but willing to, uh, as Paul said, he, he was willing to become different things to different people, to, to see people who spiritually had a need. We don't need to get comfortable, I guess is what I'm saying. We need to be uncomfortable because of the world we live in. Jesus helped hurting people. His ministry of service was constant throughout his entire life. 
Jesus saw people where they were and he reached out to them. He didn't expect them to all come to him. I'm reminded of of, uh, the story about the leper in Mark chapter 1. I won't take time to read it, but in Mark chapter uh, 1, verses 40 and 40 through 45, when, when Jesus heals a leper, if you remember the story, a man with leprosy came and, and he begged to be healed. And, and he said to Jesus, if you want to, you can make me well again. And it says, Jesus was moved with pity and he touched him and he said, I want to. And he said, then be healed. And what we need to not lose focus on in that is, is Jesus was so involved in the lives of people He did not have to touch that leper to heal him. So why did he touch him? Jesus could have literally said from a distance, be healed, and that leper would have been healed. But he touched him to let him know that he identified with him, that he cared about him. And and, and that was true of his life over and over again. Every one of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ have the privilege and the responsibility to introduce others to him. You know, we really can go about it several different ways, can't we? We've had so many programs, seeing Dale here and Lloyd, different ones through the years. I, you can check off all the programs of th- stuff that we've memorized and all of that, and, and that's all good and that's great. But what I'm talking about are really, I guess, kind of styles of evangelism. We can be aggressive and confrontational, and a lot of times that will drive people away. Or we can be lethargic and passive and just sit back and just watch the world go by. Or we can be relational and what I like to say is just natural and allow God to use us where we are with what we have to impact the lives of people. That's what I witnessed in Florida over and over and over again when somebody that was busy cooking in the kitchen would take a moment to walk off to the side and a group of individuals would wrap their arms around hurting people and just huddle there to the side and pray to let them know that we cared. This kind of evangelism demonstrates to those that we meet that we love them unconditionally. It helps uh, people where they're hurting. What I'm not talking about then is necessarily a program. It's just a lifestyle. It's something that you and, and I are very capable of doing on a daily basis because your path will cross the paths of people that I will never see with needs in their life that I will never be aware of. But I think ministry evangelism is the, is the work of the church. And when we become willing to be Christ ministers in a hurting world, I think God will honor our efforts, and then he'll provide the resources that are necessary. All we got to do is have the faith and the discipline to follow what he wants us to do. You know, I'm reminded of that passage of Scripture in, in Matthew, and, I, and, and, and that's what I had them list. We won't break it down tonight. It, just, it, is, it tells us what it's all about to begin with, that one day we will stand before him. And when we stand before him, he's not going to ask what my mother did or my father did or a grandparent did or for you a brother or sister. I'm an only child, so I can't say brother or sister. But he's going to examine what I did. 
It says that he's going to separate the nations and he's going to place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then he's going to say to those on the right, come, you were blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom that I've prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he talks about ministry evangelism. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And you remember the Bible records, we'll say, Lord, we don't ever remember seeing you hungry, giving you something to eat, thirsty, giving you something to drink. We don't remember seeing you sick or in prison and and coming to you. And, And what did Jesus say? To the extent that you did it to the least of these. It's just like you were doing it to me. I ran across a, a verse, a poem that I had jotted into my notes probably 30 years ago. It's entitled, How Shall I Feed Them? And it says, I was well fed, so I did not see the hungry child standing next to me, nor did I see the look of fear in the young mother's eyes as she held the child near. I had the means within my grasp. I thought nothing of the anxious clasp of the old man's hand as he faced a dad and thought of the funds he couldn't get. I was not in bonds. I was free so I could self-righteously pass by the jail for I was good and did the things that a Christian should. And I could hold my head from the stumbling lurch of a drunken man as he fell in the gutter with a burden so great he could not utter. And I went along my merry day, my sun-filled day, and thought of all the good deeds, but I failed to see those who were in need. And when, I came, when it came time for bed, I said my prayers, and I tried in vain to go to sleep. But a voice kept saying over and over to me again, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then I heard someone call my name, and slowly to my vision came the frightened child in a mother's hand, the frightened face of a tired old man, the prison and the souls inside, and the drunken man in the gutter. And I said, oh, Lord, how can this be? There are too many here for me. And he replied, there is a way with sufficiency to meet your day. This is how it can be done. You feed them one by one. I hope that we realize that God is calling us to live a life that is irresistible for others. And as we live that life and serve as a magnet to draw people to Jesus Christ, that we will realize that we are here on mission for Jesus and we are to befriend people and to serve people. Like I said, Paul said, and it's recorded in Corinthians, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some one by one. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to a moment of invitation, I would pray that we would realize that not only during this season of the year, but Father, literally, Every day that you give us life and breath is a day to serve you. Father, I pray that we would 
this week, though, see the path as you allow our paths to cross in people's lives that you would bring them into us as divine appointments and that we, Father, would, would reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. May we share that hope and that love in a darkened world. May we, the church, realize that you've called us to minister and to be change agents in our world. And Father, may you use us on a daily basis. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our invitation here? Brother Dale will be down front if there's a decision you need to make.